0: Alright, is that working? There's no green light, so we'll see how that goes. Alright, well, if you haven't heard it this morning, which you probably have, good morning. Um, it's great to see so many people this morning. Um, you know, we're almost at a point of having to pull some chairs out, so um, it's just good to see a full room, see some families back from COVID, uh, see some visitors, just welcome this morning. Um, If you don't know, we typically um, pray for another church in our community and pray for an unreached people group. So please join me, and we're going to continue our morning in prayer. Father, we just want to um, lift up another church in our community this morning, um, FBC in West Tawakani, Pastor uh, Lonnie Irwin. Lord, we ask that you would just um, fill that body with joy. May they be encouraged and equipped by your word this morning. I ask that you would um, uh, watch over their pastor, that you would just strengthen um, his leadership of that body. Um, may his marriage be fruitful and strengthened, and just may his study time and his leading of that body in your word this morning be um, glorifying to you. And may they just be a light in Hunt County for you together as um, FBC West Tawakonee and Cross Point Fellowship and all the other churches in the community stand together as your church. Lord, we thank you for that, and thank you for the work that you have done and continue to do in this community. Lord, too, we want to lift up the, the Balinese people. Um, 4.2 million worldwide, but this morning we're going to be praying for a particular group of them in Malaysia. It's only 6,000. Uh, separated from the majority of their people in Indonesia, um, primarily Hindu group. It's 0.00% Christian. No known Christians among this people group, Lord. We ask that you would provide them access to the word, and that you would raise up workers um, in and around their context, uh, from afar, maybe even out of this body, Lord, that you would send workers into the field to reach them, and that you would be drawing them to you. Or we know that you are at work in and among these people, and we just ask that that would be a, a fruitful work and bring glory to you. Lord, this morning we come to you and we know that apart from you we can do nothing, that apart from you we are bound to sin, and we confess our sinful state and we ask and receive the promised forgiveness that you give us. Lord, this morning, I ask for myself just to set aside any confidence in the flesh, any anxiety, and that you would just speak clearly to your people this morning um, as we finish this book of Philippians. Lord, we thank you, and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. We have made it to the end of the book of Philippians. Which means there's really probably not much left, just some concluding remarks. We'll probably get out and be the first ones in line for lunch, maybe even be there early enough for brunch. But we all know that's not true. (laughs) There is some significant content as Paul closes out this letter. Um, In chapter 3, we saw how our union with Christ makes us participants with him in suffering. Whether that's the persecution that the Philippian church was facing, or um, just the weakness, the vulnerability, the lack, loss, and death that we face in this world. Last week, we talked about how our union with Christ plays out in not just in these sufferings, but also being sent into these sufferings. How we are sent into this weakness, vulnerability, lack, loss, and death. And we participate with Christ in doing the Father's work, in and among that. This week, we're going to see how our union with Christ doesn't just leave us in this broken state, in this broken and fallen world, but that how we have hope and that we are united with Christ in His life, and His resurrection, both now and in this future fulfillment. We talked about how we're on this road from resurrection, Christ's death and life, resurrection, his final consummation, his fullness of glory. And in the middle of that, Christ meets us in our sufferings to provide comfort and consolation, and he points us towards his future glory in anticipation. So if you would, um, please stand and we'll read our passage for this morning, coming from Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 10, we will read through the, uh, just the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes! I can win football games. I can run a 10K. Not a 5K because... Jesus, right? Um, I can ace the high school tests, right? I mean, this verse is everywhere. (laughs) Um, Right, This, this verse is everywhere. You know, from really hard things to things on the border of being a little ridiculous. And typically, this is used in relation to doing something. I can, I can do this, I can win this game. I can ace this test. I can get this job. I can win the lottery, right? Because Jesus could do that. Or maybe it's something related to needing strength. Strengthen me to play this sport or to climb this mountain or to run a race, right? And so just to make sure I wasn't completely off base on what society views this verse as, I did a quick survey of the top 100 images on Google image search for Philippians 4.13. So you can see I can win sports, right? You can go to the next slide. I can mountain, not quite sure, but there's a lot of pictures of mountains. (laughs) Um, Next one, okay, it's I can climb mountains. That's that's what they were getting at. Um, What's the next one? I can, something to do with water or lions. Not quite sure with that, but Um, Go to the next one, buddy. I like this one. I can study, I can learn, right? Technology, it's not just about mountains and lions. Um, And what's the next one? This is just kind of random. We've got a desert chain, somebody looking at the sun and burning their eyes out. Um, And I like it. Philippians 4.13 has its own Facebook page with a symbol with really strong arms and a very cursive T. Uh, that's, that's supposed to be the cross, I'm assuming, but, um, and let's see, I think there's one more. This one's my favorite. (laughs) I can lift a twig through Christ who strengthens me, right? All right. Thank you for that, buddy. (laughs) Someone sent me a picture and I probably should have put this up there. It said, it was a picture of a coffee cup. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Isn't this true to some extent, though? I mean, yes, we can look to Christ in all of these things. But this verse is everywhere. What does it really mean? What are we even talking about here? We hear, I can do X because I'm made strong. But sometimes we forget the rest of the verse, right? We forget the one who does it. We are really, really good about making this verse about us. When at the very least, without even looking at context, this verse is not about what we can do. It's about our weakness. It would imply that the opposite is true, that I can't do anything apart from Christ. So for this morning, we're going to at least start with that. But we're also going to dig into the context and see how Paul is saying that and so much more. So, um, before we get back to verse 13, we're going to look at the rest of this passage where Paul talks about the other thing that we can't do anything without. Money, right? Just kidding, we can do a lot without money. But Paul, in this concluding passage, he finally recognizes and thanks the Philippian church for the gift that they sent to him, a very generous gift that was accompanied with Epaphroditus. <clears throat> But even in this, the focus of this gift, where he's talking about this gift, is not about money. It's not about his thankfulness to the Philippian church. It's about Christ. Uh, The commentator, Gordon Fee, says that to miss the central focus on Christ would be to miss the letter altogether, and to miss the heart of Paul's theology. So as we come through this and we land this plane on this book, we ought to be looking to see what does this say about Christ? So, in verse 14 through 19, after verse 13, um, Paul really picks this up and he says, like, thank you. Thank you for your gift. But your gift was not for my benefit. It was for your benefit. Paul's joy is not because he was in need. He's not saying, I was starving and you sent me this money, and now I can eat. I'm so happy, right? I mean, that may well have been part of it. Eating is something that we need to do. And a lot of times, especially in Paul's state, that takes money. But his joy is that the Philippian church was giving. And this giving that they have is fruit of the gospel at work within them. It's proof to Paul that the Philippian church was not being controlled by their money. And for them, it would have been really easy to hold on to their money and let that control them because it's believed that it was pretty. Um, there was a lot of poverty in and among the Philippian church, that they didn't have a lot of financial means. They may have at one point, but they lost that when they started following Christ. <clears throat> So, this does beg the question. This is not the the point of this morning, but it does a little thought. It says, Do our finances bear fruit? Or do we follow what Proverbs says in chapter 30, where we have too much and we disown God and say, Who is the Lord? Just something to think about. But Paul's also saying, He's like, Don't read into too much of what I'm saying, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about, like, I'm not comparing you to these other churches that didn't support me. And I'm not trying to hint at this fact that I actually do have a big, real need. He's saying, don't give in to temptations to trust your money. But ultimately, this is about Christ. And our fellowship with Christ in His sufferings means that we can also have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in their sufferings. The same word... Is used in both places. Now, the gift that he's talking about here, um, we talked about it a little bit last week, but this is different from a patron-client type of relationship. Paul, in fact, is trying to very much distance himself from that, saying like, "You're not my patron because you've been supporting me financially. I'm not indebted to you. In fact, God is my patron." Paul goes so far in this when he visits other churches that he won't, refu- he won't accept any support when he goes to other churches. You see this where he goes in and he supports himself by working with his hands, um, making tents and things like that. But even then, when he's in these other churches, we know that the Philippian church has continued to support him over and over again. And the support that they're giving indicates that this is not one of a patron-client relationship, but it's one of deep, deep friendship. You know, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 30, he actually did have something lacking in the gift that they had given them before, the support they had been giving him. It was their presence. He says, Epaphroditus completed what was lacking because he has come and now I can enjoy your presence Paul is deeply committed to, connected with, and just loves, loves these people in Philippi. See, the Greco-Roman friendship is very different from our view of friendship nowadays. We read this, this kind of giving and receiving, giving and receiving, as like transactional, as like a business type of relationship. That's where we get like the patron-client type of relationship that we very easily read into this, but in the Greco-Roman friendship, there wasn't an uh, an involved, this act, this aspect of reciprocity, this mutual support and mutual benefit. We may look at that as saying, well, that's just you looking at a friendship as what's in it for me, but this was a central part to how friendships worked, and it's hard for us to really understand that. But you see, like in verse 18, he's basically providing a receipt to them, saying, I have received and I am paid in full. But this isn't some sort of transactional benefit. See, the Philippians have shown their friendship in their gift, and now it's Paul's turn to return that to them. That's just how it worked. Part of being good friends. In the past, when Paul was there in the city or in the area, this aspect of reciprocity that Paul had to return to the Philippians would have been in the form of his coming and teaching, and then they would provide for his material needs, but his friends. But here, Paul is saying, I can't come. But in verse 19, we see how Paul is saying, in my absence, my true patron God will supply what you need. Verse 19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is another verse that's also taken out of context a lot. But Paul essentially is saying here, God will fulfill my um, reciprocity to you. But he's not saying that God is now obligated to provide for the Philippians. In context, there is some aspect of material needs that he's being talked about here, but Paul's emphasis here is twofold. One, he's saying that God will provide for you, even when it's really hard, just as He provided for me. And we've seen how God provided for Paul with shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and imprisonments. He's not saying God's going to give you bountiful gifts of material possessions, but in the other aspect. Paul's actually saying, he's like, this, what is here in this letter to you, is me fulfilling my duty to you, because I am here now teaching you what is in this letter. And what a great, great lesson it is. Our every need has been met in Christ. God provides so much more than our material needs. This is how we read Verse 13. So let's back up to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you catch that? Verse 11 and 12, Paul had to learn this. What did he learn exactly? Well, he learned how to be brought low. This is Paul, after all. He had been brought very low, and how to abound. He talked earlier about all these things he used to have in the flesh. But even that, he still knows how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has learned all of this. And in the midst of that, he has learned how to be content. The word he uses here for contentment is a direct borrowing, lifting from the Stoic philosophers of that day. Contentment was this idea of self-sufficiency, And for the Stoic philosophers, this was the most valuable attribute of a wise person. But Paul is saying, you know, I didn't find these resources for contentment. I didn't find these within myself, but instead, they reside in the Lord, through whom he can face all things. Paul's not independent, but totally dependent. He is not self-sufficient. He is Christ-sufficient. And then we get to verse 13. Paul talks about how he can do all things. And we read that with this aspect of contentment. But then he says, he throws out this all things. All things? Come on, Paul, what is that supposed to mean? Right? Should I study for this test or not? Should I go on this backpacking trip through the mountains or not? Right? Should I do this or not? See the word that Paul uses here for all things is a really broad term and it's very common. It's actually used 34 times in this book. We're not gonna look at all 34. But just like in English, all can be used in a lot of different ways. He uses it as in like greet all the saints, in all boldness, or in every way. You can use it as an adjective or an adverb, but also as a noun, indicating the all or entirety of a group of things which is what we see here, all things. So is Paul just really prone to speaking in big absolutes to the point of being a little excessive? Like, Paul, not everything can be spoken of in the term of all. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think he's trying to point at something really in particular here when he says all things. And while this word is very common, he uses in this exact way several times throughout this book. So we're going to do a quick survey to look at these all things that Paul's talking about. Chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, we'll start in verse 7. But whatever I gain, or whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, the very first thing, Paul's saying now in verse 13 in chapter 4 that he can do all things, but he just finished saying, I count all things as lost. So, clearly, he's not saying all things, including running marathons or climbing mountains or acing tests. There's something more going on here. Look in verse twenty-one in chapter three, he clarifies this a little bit. Um, or maybe verse twenty. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Lord we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's recognizing that in all things, God is sovereign. He is in control and it subjects all things to himself. Look over in chapter one, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, in all things, same word there, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. For Paul, the circumstances, whether good or bad, or the motivations surrounding those circumstances, whether pure or impure, they don't matter because Christ is moving forward. And in that, Paul can rejoice despite the circumstances. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, "For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing." Paul's recognizing that whatever is at work in you, whatever these circumstances are, good or bad, God is working in them for his glory. So do that without grumbling or complaining. And then Paul goes on even further to clarify for himself that even if he dies, it's for God's glory. And he can rejoice in that. Then we get to chapter 4, where we've been the past couple weeks. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone the lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your reasonableness or let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus in all things We go to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We let that be made known to God, and we do it with a thankful heart. And then when we tie this back into verse 13, in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Same word there in Greek, in all things. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In every circumstances, he has learned how to be content. And then in verse 19 we mentioned earlier, says that God will supply all things according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This, all things. This is Paul's learning process that he is now teaching to the Philippians. First, he sees that Christ is glorified in all circumstances. And he recognizes that God is using all of those circumstances to bring about his glory through our circumstances. He's using those circumstances in us, whether good or bad, to bring about his glory. And so in response to that, we shouldn't grumble or complain, but we should go to God and be thankful. Take our request to God in prayer. And we can be thankful because we know that God is sovereign over all. And when it gets hard, we can turn to God instead of putting our confidence in the flesh. And in Him, we find steadfastness, joy, reasonableness or gentleness, thanksgiving, peace, and peace that surpasses all understanding. Because we are content in Him when the world says we should be anxious, vindictive, that we should grumble and complain, that we should be in need, and we should be brought low. Being in him is truly all that we need. And with this, Paul concludes the letter with doxology. and says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what he has learned, and this is what he is teaching the Philippians And this is what we too can learn from this letter this morning. But there's even more going on here. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper. Do a little bit of work. Because as you saw here, even just the term that he uses for all things can get a little bit lost in translation. There are a few few translations, or a few verses that are translated as all things in the ESV. Other things are translated as in every way or in any circumstance. But Paul, he is a master rhetorician. He uses devices to grab people's attention so that they can remember, so they can recognize and reason with what he's trying to say, and that um, they can repeat that then as they go out and teach. So there's something else going on here too that we want to unpack. You see, Paul, he's aware of the circumstances of the Philippians, why they might need this lesson of contentment. In chapter 1, verse 29 through 30, he talks about how he's been granted to the Philippians that they should suffer for the sake of Christ in this same conflict that Paul has and still has. Paul had with them and still has now as he's in prison in Rome. We know that Paul suffered at both the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And while Paul does warn the Philippians about the Judaizers coming in and trying to corrupt the Christian faith and the Jews that are trying to come in and prevent the Christian faith from spreading, the majority of the persecution faced by these Philippians was at the hand of Rome. So Philippi was in a very, very Roman context. Look in um, Acts chapter 16, if you will. Just real quick, this is where Paul and Silas are in Philippi, the first go-around. You see the, the conversion of Lydia, and then Paul and Silas are out there, and there's this um, demon-possessed woman that they, um, has a spirit of di- divination, and they cast out this spirit because she's following them around, and... Picking up in verse 19. We'll pick up in, yeah. Um, but her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And we know that that also didn't hold them. But... The point here is that the gospel, this message going throughout Philippi, that was at the heart of this church, is completely incongruent with Rome. And Philippi was a fully Roman city. You see, Roman citizenship had been given as a gift to the whole city after a series of decisive battles in and around the area. And then, even further, to solidify their loyalty to Caesar, they set up Philippi as this Roman military colony and settled a bunch of Roman soldiers and Roman military veterans in the area. And Philippi was known for being very religious, very devout to these Roman pagan religions, and fiercely loyal to Caesar. And these two combined, Philippi was the heart of, especially in the eastern area, of this deification of Caesar. In Philippi, Caesar, his most common name, like his, the title that was referred to him, instead of Caesar or emperor or something like that, was Savior and Lord. That was the most common name for Caesar, the co- most common title. And they're in the midst of this, at the height of Roman power. During the season of Pax Romana, Romana, the peace of Rome, where Rome ruled the world, the golden age of Rome. So when this new word comes along, promoting this new and better Lord and Savior, and then it starts to gain a following, they're going to face some pushback. You saw the small amount of pushback that they got with Paul and Silas that ended up in beatings and imprisonment. So imagine when that gains traction, and there's a church established, and they start meeting regularly, and they're growing. They're going to face pushback. You know, we we've, we've referenced this passage the past couple of weeks in John chapter 17, but verse 14, Jesus says to the Father, He says, "I have given them Your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world." So Paul, he's keeping their context fresh in their minds, letting them know as he writes this letter to them, I have not forgotten what you are in the midst of. I have not forgotten your plight. All throughout this letter, he's referring to Jesus as Lord and Savior, in contrast to Caesar. Just in chapter 4 alone, the words that he uses for the book of life when he talks about anxiety, when he talks about the gentleness or reasonableness All of those words, in context, we miss this completely, but all of those words point to in the context of persecution. When they've been used in the Jewish Old Testament, or how they're used in common uh, Greek language of that day, it's um, not having anxiety in the face of persecution. Used in Mark and Luke, um, when they're brought before Um, the rulers and authorities says, do not be anxious about what you're going to say. That's the word for anxiety, not the common word for just being anxious for anxiety's sake. Gentleness is about not being vindictive in the face of somebody hurting you. The reasonableness, this is the word that's used when Jesus suffered but did not retaliate in 1 Peter. Jesus then calls us to pray for those who persecute us in Matthew chapter 5. All these things, Paul's saying, I know where you're at, but listen to what I'm saying here about Christ. The background of everything he's saying in these concluding exhortations is persecution. This is why in the middle of this list of imperatives in verse 4 through 7, he puts in this one last indicative, the Lord is near. He's saying to the Philippians, you are not alone, the Lord is near. He is with you now in the midst of your sufferings, and he is coming again. His coming is near, and his presence is near with you now. Now, we we may not experience life or persecution in any way like Paul did or the Philippian church did, but we do experience and we feel that the world is broken. We feel this weakness, vulnerability, lack, loss, and death. We feel that. We wake up tired, we go to work, and we toil against the cursed soil. Women feel the pain of childbirth. Even just yesterday, my family's in town visiting uh, before the holidays, and I woke up, went downstairs, and I saw my mom, she was looking at me, kind of a blank stare on her face, and she's like, "Well." we got to take Tom to the emergency room. We feel it, right? We feel kidney stones. We feel everything. Like, it hurts. Like, we feel that the world is not how it ought to be. We feel the effects of the fall. And we, too, need the hope in this coming consummation, this fullness of God being perfectly fulfilled So Paul is exhorting the Philippians, and same too to us, that Jesus is better than the mess that they face. He builds this huge contrast throughout the book between Rome and Jesus. Can you imagine the identity complex for one of these Philippian believers? Someone whose life and existence was tied to Caesar. Caesar gave them purpose and prosperity, for many of them like a livelihood, like employment, And now he has turned his hand against them. But Paul's saying, no, no, you have something better. In chapter 1, he talks about contending together for the gospel. Or in chapter 4 here, you see how he talks about how Jesus will guard your hearts and your minds. Or in chapter 3, how our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things have images in contrast to Rome or the Roman military. You know, Luke, um, in his nativity account, describes Jesus as the consolation of Israel. Israel has been groaning, waiting for this final consummation, the final fulfillment, but Jesus comes as consolation, as comfort in the midst of that. What great comfort he truly is. Rome, in all of its glory, is but fleshly things. In the lineage of Adam, but in Christ, we have a new and better Adam. In his final greetings, Paul drops something just to be left ringing in the ears of the Philippians. To know they're not stuck in the midst of this. Verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. He began the letter saying that the whole praetorium guard, the imperial guard, Caesar's elite troops, have heard the gospel. And he ends it saying that the enemy doesn't stand against the power of the gospel. Caesar's house has been infiltrated. There are brothers and sisters in the house of the enemy. Can you imagine if they knew what comfort it would be to them to know that just a few hundred years later under the Christian Roman Empire, that time itself would be measured not based on Caesar, but on Christ. B.C., before Christ. A.D., anno domini, in the year of our Lord. Or that Nero, the face of their persecution, the Lord of their enemy, would shortly after this find himself abandoned by the Praetorium Guard, declared a public enemy by the Senate, and would end up taking his own life. Paul says that in Christ, this is where true peace is found. Not in Pax Romana, but in verse 7, he says this is in Pax Dei, the peace of God. From the earliest pages of our Bible, God has promised that there is one who will come will overcome and who will restore. John 16 says that our consolation, our comfort, is that he has overcome the world. And in that, we have peace, and we have contentment, and we have hope in anticipation of this final restoration. Paul also mentions that we now have, we can have sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God Because we are in the process of this final restoration. Hebrews 9 says that we ought to eagerly await Christ's second coming. What is that going to look like? Revelation 21. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We have something great to hope in. Whatever we face, we can, with Paul, say... we can find contentment in all things. Because we are in Christ, the one who has overcome all things, and who will restore all things. Because he met the greatest need of Paul, he met the greatest need of the Philippians, and he meets our greatest need both now and forever. Pray with me if you will. Father, we thank you that you have come and that you have overcome and that you are restoring. Lord, we ask that we would see you glorified in all things and every circumstance and see that you are using the good and the bad that we face for your glory. Help us not to grumble or complain, but to respond with prayer and thanksgiving and to rest in contentment knowing that you are sovereign and that you are better. Lord, may we find in you steadfastness, joy, reasonableness, thanksgiving, and peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, may we truly be able to count all things of the flesh as loss. To you, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.